I'm going to start with two stories about my life which I think have affected me quite considerably. In fact, they may have been responsible for a lot of the good fortune that I had in life, even though the first story uh, sounds like a bad story to start with anyway. When I was a, a little snotty kid, I think I was about nine years old, my parents and I went to visit our Auntie Louise, my Auntie Louise, who was the sister of my father. She had retired, she'd been quite a successful civil servant at a time that women generally were not civil servants, and she lived in a sleepy little place on the south coast of England in Sussex called Seaford. And she lived um, with a female companion who'd been a colleague at work called Miss Gates. Now, my parents and I loved our Auntie Louise, my Auntie Louise, but we were all scared stiff of her companion, whose name was Miss Gates. And I remember vividly one day sitting in the uh, dining room of uh, Louise's house and just minding my own business. I was probably writing things. I used to write things in books. And um, in flounced Miss Gates. Never called Evelyn, although that was her name, Miss Gates. And she said to me in an imperious tone, Richard, Richard, what are you going to be when you grow up? Something like that anyway. Uh, and I didn't know what to say. Because what does a nine-year-old kid know about what he wants to do when he grows up? Uh, so I blurted out the first thing that came into my head, which was, I want to be a millionaire. That's what I said. Ha! She said. Tut! Tut, tut! That's ridiculous, she said. That's not a job. That's something that you become. And you will never become it. Because your father has no money to speak of. And you'll never make a million pounds. So forget about that. Now tell me what you really want to do. What job do you want? And so I said to her... I want to be a millionaire. I was getting petulant at that stage, as I often do. And uh, she then didn't say anything really apart from tut tut. And she turned on her heel and in a flurry of skirt exited stage left. Very humiliating. But you know, from that time on, I was really determined to become a millionaire. I don't know why, it probably wasn't a very good idea because it's not the most important thing in life. But I really decided that just to spite Miss Gates, I would become a millionaire. So that happened when I was nine. Let's fast forward about 10 years to when I was at university. I was sitting in the Bodleian Library, a very nice circular library, very old fashioned, beautiful building. Um, and one of the great things about the Bodleian Library was that you could order up any books that you wanted from the stacks, as they called them, from the bowels of the earth beneath. And for some reason, I don't know why, because it wasn't part of my coursework, for some reason I decided that I wanted to read a book written in 1895 or 96 um, by Vilfredo Pareto, who was an Italian economist living in Switzerland, in fact, working at the University of Lausanne. And the book was called The Course of Economic Theory or something like that. Uh, and I, 
I don't really know how I stumbled across it, but I came across his description of wealth in England in the 19th century, early 19th century. And he discovered that very few people, a very small proportion of the population, made nearly all of the money. Whether he looked at income or whether he looked at wealth from the statistics which were available, he saw that there was a very, very sharp distribution of wealth. That, that you know, there were very few rich people and there were a lot of poor people. Well, of course, that's obvious in a way. But what really excited him was that there was a mathematical relationship which said that for every percentage you go up in terms of the wealth scale, that it was defined in a very sharp way. And so in popular speak today, although Vilfredo Pareto never used the phrase 80-20, uh, that's a popularisation that dates from about 1950. What he was really saying was that 20% that, that of the population made 80% of the money. And not only that, but there was this linear relationship between wealth and income, which meant that the further up you went, the more concentrated it was. So if 80% of people made 20% of income, then 80% of those, sorry, yeah, then 20% of the 20%, i.e. 4%, would, would make 96% of the income. Um, and it was that kind of relationship which 96% of the, of the um, income within that group, that is. So it was that kind of very, very steep relationship that he observed. And he then looked at the wealth in other countries where wherever there was data, so he looked at France and, and Italy and Germany, uh, or the states which made up those countries before they were unified. And he found exactly the same relationship in Sweden as well. It didn't matter where he looked. He saw the same shape, not necessarily the same wealth at all, but the same shape, the same line, the same observation which could be reduced to a graph or to algebra. And this made him very excited. And then, you know, it's funny how economists get their kicks, but then what he did was to look at what had happened in previous centuries, in the 18th century, 17th century, 16th century, so on and so forth. And wherever he got data, he found exactly the same pattern. So he said, this is, you know, this is a really weird thing, but it seems to be true. And one thing that most people don't understand about the 80-20 principle is that it's not a theory. It's an observation. It's something that resulted from empirical work, in this case by, by Pareto, but also from the millions of people, I think, that have probably used this ever since. So the observation is that in any distribution, it's quite likely, it doesn't say it's inevitable, but it's quite likely that there will be this 80-20 relationship. And this 80-20 relationship can apply to anything. So for example, your clothes. If you look in your wardrobe, or if you're American, you have to look in your closet, uh, you will find that there are lots of clothes there, particularly, oh dear, I'm not allowed to say this, but particularly if you're a woman. So there'll be lots and lots and lots of clothes. But 
What clothes do you wear? Well, if you're like me, or if you're like the great majority of people, you will wear very few of those clothes most of the time, your favorite clothes. So you might say 20% of your clothes are worn 80% of the time, although I suspect it's more like 5% of clothes are, are worn uh, uh, 95% of the time. And similarly, you will have favorite things that you use all the time and other things which you've got lots of that you, that you don't use. Um, and if you look at any distribution in the business world, you will see this 80-20 pattern occurring time and time again. One of the things that helped me when I was at university, before I gone to, back to business, after, when I was 19 years old, after discovering this pattern, I thought about, well, what about my examinations? Because Oxford's a bit unusual. All of your degree is dependent on your final examination. So you, you work or you don't work for three years, and then you take, in my case, 11 three-hour examinations and that determines what class of degree you get. And I wanted to get a very good degree. And so what I did was to say, well, it's probably true that although there are lots and lots of questions on the exam paper, there are a few of them that come up almost every year. So I, I did my research. I got the exam papers for the last 20 years in my subject, which was history. And I tried to find the questions which came up most frequently. Now, of course, the examiners are not stupid. They, dis they actually disguise the, the subject by asking a question in a slightly different way each time. But, for example, there was always a question on the French Revolution, always a question on the French Revolution in the paper which was devoted to uh, 18th century history in Europe. And so you could be pretty sure about that. There was nearly always a question about the origins of the First World War, what caused the First World War. And there was nearly always a question about um, whether Hitler could have been stopped, kind of like the, the origins of the Second World War, but a bit more specific than that. You know, was, was Hitler's, um, did Hitler cause the Second World War? And if he did... Uh, could he have been stopped? Was that inevitable or could action have been taken earlier to stop him and, and prevent the Holocaust and the, and the tens of millions of deaths which there were in the Second World War and so on and so forth. So I discovered that for each paper that I was going to answer, I had to answer four questions. There were some subjects which came up time and time again and I chose the top six in all cases because it was nearly always true that there would be at least four out of those six questions coming up. So I cut out the vast majority of the work that I had to do in preparation for my uh, exams. I actually only focused on very, very, very few subjects. And of course it worked. Why, why wouldn't it work? It was the same in my year as in all the other years. And so therefore I was able not to do very much work, but still to get a very good degree. And after that, I thought, well, this is this principle, the 80-20 principle, or the uh, Pareto rule, as it was known at the time. Uh, I think it's jolly useful, so maybe I can use this. And then later on in my business life, I discovered product line profitability. The, the, the idea behind the 80-20 principle is really that there are very few things, or very few things in a business, which are very important. Most of what we do and most of what business is doesn't matter. It's insignificant. It could go away. And for example, most of the products that a large company makes 
don't make very much profit or in, in many cases make a loss. Because companies like sales, they don't necessarily understand the importance of profits. And because it's actually sometimes very difficult to work out how much profit a particular product makes because it not only involves the gross profit involved, i.e. how much it costs you to buy in the goods and how much you sell them for, but it also depends on how much effort goes into manufacturing them. And today, a great deal of every business is overhead. And overhead is a nasty, pernicious, dangerous thing, which spreads like wildfire. And some, and some products take a huge amount of overhead and other products take very little and nobody notices. But if you do a product line profitability study, you discover that there are a very few products that may make most of the money. And therefore, if you prune everything back to those few products and try and expand the sales of those products, you will make a lot more money. You might be able to double or treble the profit made in a particular business by doing that. And why wouldn't you want to do that? And then you cut out all the other products. And then managers, when they're told this, go up, they start to raise their hands and say, no, but you can't just, you can't just make those products because there are customers who are buying lots of the other products. But when you investigate that, you find sometimes it's true and sometimes it isn't. And also when it's true, it doesn't necessarily mean that those people wouldn't buy the profit, the products you make a lot of profit on if you didn't make the other products. So you can experiment obviously and see whether making few products works, but it, it almost always does. And then you can discover something which is a very interesting relationship and which has really been the source of most of the money that I've made. And that is that that there is something in common amongst the products or the markets in which you operate or the segment, business segments in which you operate, which is in common or is common to the products that make the most money. Most of the products that make the most money have a very high market share of their particular segment, if you define that properly. And I'm not going to explain, I can't explain in the time we've got today, what, what that segmentation is and how it works. But it's the heart of understanding any business. You need to identify the products or the segments, which might be the customers who are buying it. They might be the physical markets that you're in. It, they might be the technology that you use. It might be whether they're the more expensive products or the cheap products. It might be some combination or permutation of all those different attributes. But there are some segments which make most of the money and nearly always you find that the company that's making those and making a profit, huge profit out of those is the, the market leader and sometimes absolutely dominant in that particular part of the market. And this was the origin of the STAR principle. I didn't invent the STAR principle, the Boston Consulting Group did in the late 1960s and I was employed by them uh, shortly after that. And what you discovered was that it was always possible to go into companies and say, well, actually, there are a few products which are making all the money. And then the products which were most interesting were those not only where the company was the market leader, but where there was high market growth. And in a way, that's obvious, isn't it? That if a market is growing fast, the sales will increase in the future. And if you hold market share or increase market share, you will increase and hold your um, 
profits. And those profits can be compounded over time by a combination of increasing market share and the market growth. So nearly all the money that I've made in business has come from star businesses, from companies that had star businesses, and from changing those companies' uh, focus from the vast majority of their products to the few products which are hugely profitable and which are in high growth markets. That's pretty simple, but it's an extension of the 80-20 principle. And then the thing which I've discovered in the last 10 years, which I'm very excited about, is network businesses. And I'm not the only one to have discovered network businesses. What's a network business? It's something like Google. It's something like Uber. It's something like Facebook. It's something which has a very um, easy life in many ways because the growth in the marketplace doesn't come primarily from what the company does, from marketing or from building new factories or anything like that. The growth in the marketplace comes from the customers, from you and me. An example, one of the companies that I invested in a few months after it started was called Betfair. And Betfair totally changed the way that the gambling industry operates. For centuries, gambling has been done with the help of bookmakers. These are people you see at the racetrack. They, they used to have blackboards and pieces of chalk. Now they have electronic scoreboards and they chart up the odds. So if you want to back a particular horse in a race, for example, um, you see what odds are being offered by the different bookmakers. And it operates away from the track in off-track betting shops and, and similar sorts of places. And more recently, it started operating on the internet as well. If you can hear some panting in the background, don't worry about it, it's just my dog. Beautiful dog, Labrador, black Labrador called Sooty. Sooty, go away. <laughs> so bookmakers were great, but they weren't that great because they took a commission of about 10%. If you added up all the different bets, there was a profit they were making on most of that of 10%. And back in 2000, a very, very bright guy called Bert Black, who had been a professional gambler, decided that it was possible to have bookmaking without the bookmakers. And he started what was called a betting exchange, and the company was called Betfair, where they set up an electronic market, which did what the bookmakers did, but had other advantages, because anyone could, in effect, become a bookmaker by playing uh, the game of being on the other side of the transaction. So it's as though uh, an individual could not only buy shares from a stockbroker, but sell them as well through an electronic market. Well, the same principle was applied to the betting industry. And you could go on to Betfair and uh, make bets. And you could also take the bookmaker's position, which says this team or this horse is not going to win. And you could act effectively as the person who is the bookmaker in that situation. So it's a wonderful thing. And the commission which people had to pay, instead of being the bookmaker's 10% profit, was approximately 2%. So it was better value, but it was also hugely more exciting and valuable. Um, well, that's a network business, for example. And, you know, uh, Facebook's a network business. 
uh, Twitter as a network business, Google as a network business, and so on. And the characteristic of network businesses is that the more people there are in the network, the more valuable the network is. It goes back to the old idea that if one person had a fax machine or a telephone, uh, it wasn't any use at all. If there were two people, it was some use. If there were four people, it was more than twice as valuable. It went up geometrically. If there were nine people, then, in, then it would treble and so on and so forth. Um, because the more people there are in the market, the more permutations or links you can generate between them. So a business which has a small number of nodes is not very useful, but a business or a system or a network which has loads and loads of nodes is enormously valuable. And that is the simple trick behind all of the companies that have made themselves and the people who started them and the people who invested in, in them early, uh, millionaires or billionaires or multi-billionaires. It's the reason that we have this rather absurd system whereby someone can start a business and end up after about 10 years with more money than almost anybody else in the world and amounts of money that have never ever been made before. So getting on for hundreds of millions of, of dollars or whatever currency you have. Uh, that is the network business. And the network business is related to the 80-20 principle because a networks, networks actually like monopoly. They almost always gravitate towards one company or two companies in the sector, having the vast majority of the market. So yes, there are loads of search engines in the world, I think 200 or so, but Google has the vast majority of the market. Yes, there are many social media outlets, and there are specialised ones, but the general ones, you know, Facebook has got uh, a huge proportion market share. There used to be um, other similar um, social media, but uh, they, they sort of disappeared because it stands to reason that everyone will go to the network which has the most liquidity and the most other people on the network. So you get a system whereby over time uh, you end up with a monopoly. And of course, if you are the owner of the monopoly, uh, you make a huge amount of money from that. Well, not only is the 80-20 principle the heart of how you make money in business, but it's also true in our personal lives that the 80-20 principle can help us a lot. Think about time, for example. Everyone says, oh, I'm short of time. I've got no time to do this. Life's too short. But actually, that's not true. The problem is not that we don't have time. The problem is that we make bad use of time, and we squander time. And if it's true that 80% of your achievement or your happiness or whatever it is that you want comes in a small proportion of your time, then actually we don't have a shortage of time. And that is true, I think, that if you think about all the things that you do in your work, there are some of things which are busy work or not very important, anybody can do them. But if you are a creative person or if you're successful in your profession or your company, it's nearly always true that there are a few things that only you can do, nobody else can do, or nobody else can do them nearly as well. 
And those are the things which are enormously valuable. Sometimes the things that you can only do are not enormously valuable. Of course, you have to have uh, customers who want them as well. But think about Steve Jobs deciding to start Apple. Or think about the insight which went into the creation of the Mac computer or the iPhone or the iPod or any of these other things. You know, it is those few moments that give you the idea and it is the decision to concentrate on that which makes a huge amount of money and a huge amount of happiness for other people as well. Or if you think about happiness, it's nearly always true that the great majority of your happiness derives from relationships with very few people. So they are uh, hopefully your spouse, but not necessarily. They're the people that you feel closest to, the people whose company you enjoy the most, maybe colleagues at work, friends or whatever. And you know enormous number of people, but probably you could count on, on the fingers of two hands the people from whom you derive the vast majority of your happiness. And once you realise that, it's quite simple. You just spend more time with those people. And you cut out, as far as possible from your life, the people who give you little happiness or negative happiness, unhappiness. And, um, you know, life's like that. There are a lot of people in life that detract from our happiness. And it's relatively important, if you want to be happy, to uh, detach yourself from most people. And similarly, there are times of your life when you are happier. You're happier doing certain things than doing other things. And therefore it makes sense to try and spend as much time on what I call your happiness islands than it does to spend time on your unhappiness islands, the, the things that bring out the worst in you. For example, I hate traffic jams. I get sort of really, really anxious and uh, concerned when I'm in a traffic jam. So that contributed to my unhappiness until I realised that actually what I ought to do is to stop going into situations where I could be in a traffic jam. <laughs> so I never went in the car in rush hours or tried to avoid it. It's a very, very simple things like that that the 80-20 principle will lead you to. And then the final example that I want to use, although there are many, many more examples in my book, is decisions. The thing that determine our success and the thing that determine our fulfilment and happiness in life very often are the decisions that we make. But not most decisions. You know, whether I'm going to have tuna mayonnaise or tuna salad for breakfast or lunch doesn't really matter a great deal. But it does matter who I decide to spend the rest of my life with. It does matter who I decide to have as my boss. It does matter which firm I go and work for. It does matter which type of activity I engage on within any particular firm or within any particular profession. It does matter how I feel about myself. It does matter that I feel creative. It does matter that I feel useful to other people. And those are things which lead to or come from decisions that we make. And certain decisions are hugely better than others. Certainly certain decisions are hugely more important to others than others. And the trouble with most of us is that we don't make those decisions. The most important decisions are often the decisions that we don't make. 
or we allow other people to make those decisions for us instead of making those decisions ourselves. Sometimes very hard to make a decision, but if it's an important decision, it's worth making it yourself and not letting other people do it for you. So those are just some examples of the 80-20 principle. As I say, it, I think it's been the root of my good fortune along obviously with a huge amount of luck. And I think it, I know it's important in our personal lives as well. And I have to keep reminding myself every day of the 80-20 principle, what am I gonna do today? What's important, what matters? And it's very often stuff that takes very little time, but does take a little bit of thought. And so giving the thought to that before you start the day is a good idea. And that, my friends, is the end of my inaugural podcast. And I invite you to listen to future podcasts. And if you want to know more about the 80-20 principle, there's my book called The 80-20 Principle. Thank you.